0: hell to get old. You know, getting old is not for wusses, I swear to God. You better have some backbone if you're going to do this deal one day at a time for a long time. Hi, everybody. I'm Patty, and I'm an alcoholic. Can you see me? I don't want you to miss a lick of this. I don't want you to miss a lick of this. And see my pretty face. I'm, I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Patty Lacascio, and I'm a member of the Midday Matinee Group in Tampa, Florida. My sobriety day, is the 8th, 1977, and I don't think I had a damn thing to do with that one. <laughs> I just got I, I got to step zero. This crack's got to stop. And, um, and for the first time on that day, I... I said not to help me stop drinking. I didn't want to lay, live the way I was living anymore, and I didn't. And I finally told the truth, and I hadn't told the truth in a long time. And my truth was, I didn't know how to live any other way. And um, oh, I hate this arrangement, but we gotta do the deed. All right. Um, can everybody hear this sad-ass story I'm about ready to tell you? I don't want you to miss a lick of it. Sometimes it's so sad I get to crying about it, you know. And I'm not a crying. crier. Um, I'm born in Tampa. From what I, I'm not sure of any of this, but this is what I I think happened. I'm born in a, I was born in a charity ward, and there were no doctors there. There were only midwives. And um, uh, two women, an Irish woman probably with red hair, went in, very pregnant. And a six-foot-one Ojibwa, uh, Canadian Ojibwa Indian, went in, both pregnant. And the Canadian Ojibwa Indian came out with me. And they finally proved I've been to genetic uh, testing uh, in the last ten years, and they have proven beyond a doubt that I don't have any Indian blood in me. Um, Where well you could tell that. I'm, I'm getting ready to expose myself. See, see, how white I am. This is Sun Tan. And, um, Florida Sun. Anyway, um, uh, she didn't like white people, and I don't blame her. I don't blame her. And starting at about a year and a half or two years, she started putting cigarette butts out on me, and she would break my arms and my legs. That was, uh, and we never lived indoors. We lived outdoors. And I was hungry all the time. And I had an older sister, in, um, uh Tina. And she was uh, uh, an Indian, and she had black hair parted in the middle, brown skin. And it turned out she was six foot two. My mom was six foot one, and I had two brothers, uh, John and Vernon, They were six five and six seven. And I'm five three and a half. So it just you know it, you could tell. Anyway. Um, When I was about four, she started selling me to white men uh, for sex. And by the time I was eight, I had syphilis, and they finally took me away from her. And um, I was adopted by uh, by a couple, and they took me to Washington, D.C. And uh, they were both born in Sicily in 1890, and they came to America in 1908. And Papa was the, the oldest of 16, and my mama was the baby of seven. And it was just like big, fat Greek wedding. I had more first cousins, and uh, all named Tony and Maria. <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, my Papa uh, was quite wealthy, uh, very wealthy, and he was also the head of a big family Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. <laughs> I didn't know about any of that stuff. I didn't know what it meant that guys would call him Smokey Joe. And my maiden name was uh, Tarantino. And um, Quentin is my third cousin two times removed. And I got, I've met him a couple of times. And, uh, oh boy, I used to think I was weird. A <laughs> oh boy, strange. And, um, but we're not supposed to badmouth our relatives, are (laughs) we? So um, they took me. I had never had a bath. I had never seen a flush toilet. I had never seen anything. We lived out on the streets. And so when I got adopted, this first night they tried to give me a bath. I had never never seen a flush toilet, and they wanted me to get on top of that, and I thought that water was going to suck me down, and I was frightened of it. And I had never had a bath in a bathtub, and um, I didn't want any part of that, and I was loaded with bugs and everything. So the next day they took me to the doctor, and I had tuberculosis, and I was dying of malnutrition, and I had rickets so bad, bowed legs I could hardly stand up. And uh, so they put me in the Tacoma Park Sanitarium run by the Seventh Day of outside Washington, D.C., and I was there for a year Uh, and thank God they had just come along with penicillin, and and so I, penicillin it helped the tuberculosis and the syphilis, and um, my adopted mother came every day, and now everybody thought she was just a really beautiful. She looked just like Claudette Colbert. She was so beautiful. She was four foot eleven, and and um, and everybody thought she was this just sweet Sicilian gumani, you know. And she taught me how to read and write, and she taught me mathematics, and she came every day, and my papa came. And one time, I I remember asking my papa, why did you adopt me? And I knew I would never get the truth out of him. And I still, to this day, don't know the truth why I got adopted. And in a time when people didn't adopt babies, but they didn't adopt eight-year-old, sick little girls. And, and he looked at me, and he said, I love you, red occurrence. And I thought, that's it. That's the closest I'm ever going to get to the truth. And um, so, I, I, and then I had a year of bed rest that I got, after I got to the hospital. And I had never seen, I had just never seen anything like this. My bedroom and a private sitting room and a private bath. And uh, they had hired a black mama for me, and she had her own bedroom and a sitting room and a private bath on the second floor, and we lived six blocks from the Capitol. And, um, and, but the best thing of all was this electric refrigerator downstairs, and I used to go in the middle of the night and open it up, and it was food. And I thought, this must be heaven, as they talk about heaven. This is heaven, because I could eat what I wanted to. And, um. And then I was getting to be about 10 years old, and I was getting well physically, and I was putting on weight. And I intuitively knew that this new thing they were talking about, Catholic schools. I didn't know what it was, but I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I intuitively didn't like it. And so my first day in Catholic school, I had my first spiritual experience and, and I'm sitting there, Mommy had dressed me in this cute little outfit, and my hair was all in French braids and bow ribbons. And I, and this, the door opened, and this big penguin, and, and she, it looked like she was gliding and like a ghost. And I was scared to death. And they jumped up out of their chairs and put their hands by their sides, and they were just like toy soldiers. And they said, "Good morning, sister." And I, I didn't know what the deal was. And she looked at me and pointed her finger, and she snapped her fingers. And back then, they used to teach nuns how to snap their fingers, and they can hear you two blocks away. And she said, "Tarantino, up." And now, I still had the language of the street, and I stuttered horribly, and I, I still have a big speech impediment, but um, I didn't, I had, I said bad words, and my parents knew that I was getting better, but I thought I greeted her with such dignity and respect. I think I said something like, hey, bitch, you talking to me, you know, something like that. And she came over and <laughs> And she socked me. She didn't hit me. She socked me in my jaw, and I went down on the floor, and the blood was running out of my nose. I thought my ear was ringing, and I thought she had broke my jaw. And I got up off the floor, and I said, what the F did you do that for? <laughs> <laughs> she hit me again. I'm down on the floor. And, and, you know, street people were quick learners because if you don't learn quick, they're, they're going to eat you alive out there. And, and I thought, whoa, this is this is bad. So by the end of the day, I got about four or five more great big, not whippings, beatings. And I tell you, that red-headed Irish Leo temper marched up Sixth Street Hill in Washington, D.C., I couldn't wait to get home and tell my father about that bee. I'm telling you, I, I, he was going to go and he was going to straighten her out. And, and I, I was so angry that my stuttering, I couldn't get anything out. And it took a long time, and finally he said, well, what did she say? Well, what did you say? And and then my papa did something that he only did two times in my whole life. My father whipped me that day, and he was yelling, Disgracione, you will never disgrace me again. So I had a spiritual awakening that day. And here's the two lessons I learned. Number one, never, ever, ever talk back to authority. Just do what they want you to do. Just say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, yes, sister, and then do what you want to do, you know, to help them. But just agree with them, you know, and that makes them feel good. And they they, they, they think they're the boss. And the second spiritual lesson I learned that day was don't tell Papa anything. And so I learned how to bury all of that stuff right along with everything else I had buried from the Indians raping, having men rape me and, and breaking my bones and starving me to death and laughing at me. So I buried everything. And, and so I went uh, the next day back to school, and the nun said, do you know how to read? And I said, yes, sister, I do. And it took me a long time to get that out. I was so scared of her, uh, not because of what she could do to me, but I was so angry. I just wanted to kill her. I just wanted to show her. and I said yes and she gave me a book and I read and she said do you know mathematics and I said yes sister I said my mother and I just finished algebra and we're going to start on trigonometry and calculus and she said you what? and so I spent a month in the 5th grade a month in the 6th grade a month in the 7th grade and a month in the 8th grade and I was 10 years old and they put me in high school and they had me tested and it turns out I have a big IQ and not a little common sense. <laughs> and I don't know if that makes me into why I'm an alcoholic, but I swear to God, I think it has a lot to do with it. Because I do some of the most stupid things. And here's what I do: I miss the obvious. Yo, you guys get it. I remember one time, saying to Katie, Katie Martin Haygood, my first sponsor of 23 years. She died when I was 23 years sober. She was from Texas, and she was she was a little woman. She got in sober January 1939, and Bill Wilson was her sponsor. And she had a whiskey voice, and she talked like this, and she was no nonsense, and she sponsored alcoholics. That meant she sponsored men and women, and she didn't care. And if you asked her why she sponsored men, she'd tell you it's none of your GB business. Mind your own business. Take your own business. That's the way she was, but she was NBS. She was no bull poop, And uh, uh, she just, uh, she said, you want to get well? And I said, yes, ma'am. And and, uh, and she'd say, well, let's do the steps. Read the book. Let's do the steps. One day I asked her, I said, will you help me get uh, spiritual? I need to get spiritual. And one of the speakers spoke to it, and I'm sorry, I forgot which one. Boy, y'all were hell. Y'all were something. Y'all were fabulous. Wow, you rocked me. And um, she said, I'll give you a spiritual 1-800-get-a-job. And uh, so, but anyway, let me finish my sad ass little story here. And uh, so, um, so I graduated, uh, I lost my mama when I was 13. I had her five years. And my father was devastated. He loved my mother, and he loved her, and he was devastated. So I would go. Uh, the chauffeur would take me to school on Monday, and I would stay Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night with the nuns in the boarding school portion of it, and then I would come home Friday, Saturday, and Sunday with my papa. But my house always had one of my uncles. My father was uh, beside the other business. He was. United Clay Construction in Washington D.C. and he built most of the Senate and House office buildings, and he, he every building. And he built the Smithsonian Institute of Natural History, and in Washington D.C. and so he made a lot of money off of that, off of this building. And my all of his baby brothers. There were fourteen boys and two girls in his family. They were all subcontractors, so there was always somebody at my house. And I still had my beautiful my mother's mother my. My grandmama, and she was, oh, man, she was, she was a witch. I'm telling you, that was a woman in the hat. And um, she loved me so much. And um, so I did well. And, and finally, when I was 15 years old, I graduated from high school. And I told Papa, I said, I want to go to law school and I want to be an attorney. I'm going to be the first female Supreme Court justice in the United States of America. And he said, No, no, baby girl. He said, See, Syrian women don't go to university. You you go sit in the kitchen with the ladies and drink a little set and make babies. And to that end he invited two guys over from Sicily for me to pick the one I wanted to marry. And the one was a womanizer. He was really Italian silk suits, and he was thin. He was a good dancer, but he never looked at my face. He would look at a woman from here to here, and he looked at every woman that way. And I thought, I'll kill the son of a bitch. <laughs> and so, Daddy sent him back to Sicily, and then. Uh, I can remember, it, it, see, I have a good memory, I, almost a photographic memory. And the second one was Trulio Civilio, And Tullio was nice. He had a good sense of humor. But he weighed about 350, 400 pounds. And I weighed about 89 pounds. So we're heading down to the beach this one summer, Sunday. And I'm looking to Tullio and I know how babies are made. And I'm looking at Tullio and I look down at me, and I think, he's going to squish me. And uh, so he took me to this North Beach, Maryland. Well, back then it was a beach where you didn't take decent white men, only loose women and motorcycle people and hillbillies and and pulled white trash onto this beach. And I was thinking, I was laughing, I thought, my father's going to kill this SOB when he figures out what beach he took me to. But, you know, so it was Ewald's Tavern. I remember the name of the place we went to. And we walked in and it was dark and they had gambling and slot machines and they were playing that hillbilly music, you know, help me make it through the night, lay, hold your warm and tender body close to mine, lay your head upon my pillow. This, that was good music, you know. And uh, he bought me a Miller High Life beer. And I had it and it was wet, cold, and delicious. And by the third beer, it had gotten to my tummy, and it went, boom. You, you see, you're alcoholic. Now, you Alanis, you have no idea what the hell I'm talking about.
1: <laughs>
0: But that alcohol gets down here, and it goes, boom. And something magical and mystical happens. Baby, boom. You know? That's what we live for. And all of a sudden, I wasn't 89 pounds. I wasn't flat-chested. I I didn't have this kinky red hair. And by the fourth or fifth beer, I was a combination of Marilyn Monroe, Deanna Diors, and Jane Mansfield. I had titties growing right in front of my eyes. I didn't stutter anymore. I was telling jokes to the boys. I was dancing with every guy in the place. I was having a hell of a good time. And I had never had a good time in my life. And I was having a good time. And I, I, had, I started a 22-year love affair, and it had nothing to do with Tulio's civility. It was alcohol. Oh, was my boyfriend, my new boyfriend. Because, baby, that alcohol did for me what nothing had ever done before. And I, all of a sudden, I looked over at Tulio, and I was given the gift of reading minds. That's one of the benefits of drinking alcohol. You can read minds. And and Tulio was thinking, it's only going to take one more beer. And so I started giving him ESP. And I was trying to give him, I'm looking at Carl, and I'm going to give him, if you live to be a thousand, you ain't going to get in my drawers. And 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 we never saw saw Tulio again. And uh, Daddy shipped him back. And, and uh, Daddy made me get a job in Washington, D.C. I went to work for the State Department. Oh, man, I had four top-secret clearances. Um, I, I, I just was not cut out for a nine-to-five job. I didn't do well. Um, and, and, uh, and Papa was starting to say things like, You drink too much. All the time, you come home late. Where you? Where you been? Where you been? And you know the answer. Out. Where you been? Out. What you doing? Nothing. How many drink? How much? How many drinks? Two, two. And finally, Papa had me put back in the Tacoma Park Sanitarium and Hospital. And now it wasn't a TV hospital anymore. Now it was a fancy drawing out place in Washington D.C. for senators and congressmen and and. Uh, Ambassadors, and Patty Ann. And and their treatment was electric shock therapy, baby. And I had 26 of those. And it must have worked because I wasn't drinking, but I couldn't remember my name. And I intuitively knew that I had to get out of there or else I was going to die. I just knew I was going to die. And so I got myself thrown out of there. I made... I went to occupational therapy and I, they gave me play and I built, built a, a anatomically correct male member <laughs> that was circumcised. And the woman came in and she said, oh, what have we got here? And she looked at it and she said, oh, no, no, no tracking it down, and they threw me out. I didn't go to my father's house. I, I came back to Florida, and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I could never be around my father. Um, again, as much as I love my father, I knew I could never be around him. And um, um, I met three three guys in Florida. They were the Mackle brothers, and they were building this Big development off the coast of Naples, Florida. It was old mangrove island called Marco Island. I was selling Marco Island back in 1952 for $3,500 for a seawall lot. Now they go a million plus for seawall lots. And uh, and then ten years later, the Mackel brothers, who became I think U.S. Homes, took me up and we sold something called Spring Hill, Florida. So by the time I was 20, I had made my first million. And by the time I was 26 I had been married two times, my first husband died the day my son was born, my first child was born, two drunken teenagers on the wrong side of the road, crashed into and split into and and then I had married again and my baby died within 12 hours, we were still in the hospital and she died of something called SIDS and a couple of months later my husband also had an accident and so I'm 26 27 years old and I'm a widow two times and and lost one baby and this Catholic God that I come to believe in I didn't want to hear anything more about God or anything Uh, and love I just didn't want to there was nothing, you know, it was all a sham. all of it was a lie and I just the only thing I wanted to do was to raise my baby my son and to give him a good life and, and let him know that I loved him and that I would I would never abandon him. I used to tell myself that every day I will never abandon you. And um, my girlfriend that I had gone to high school with was having, a good Catholic girl, was having her 11th child. And she died in childbirth having her 11th child. And I was already godmother to three of her ele- uh, 11 children. And two months later, her husband, Keith, died in a a, fate, a real horrible, horrible accident. So the kids had nobody. And so I went up to Hammond, Indiana, and I, um, I had a lot of money, but as I say, no common sense. And I went that money morning to the judge, and uh, I said, I want to adopt the kids, and my banker and my lawyer are going to call you and tell you I'm a, I'm a good person, and I have plenty of money. And he said, why should I let you adopt these children? And I said, you don't want 11 kids on the welfare rolls of the state of Indiana. And he looked at me, and then he started signing the adoption papers. And so uh, that night, I got them all in bed, and I was sitting on the toilet. You know, that's the best place that alcoholics do their best thing, sitting on the john at night in the quiet. And I thought, my God, what have I done? Twelve kids. And the oldest was ten and a half, and the baby was two months. Twelve kids under ten and a half. And I thought, somehow I'll do it. I'm a survivor. Patty is a survivor. I, I, I my God, I can do this. I can do this. And... Um, and I took them back to Florida, and we used to we laughed a lot. I tell you, my kids, I didn't know I didn't know how to be a mommy. I really didn't, because I had never been taught how to be a mommy, and and uh, uh, never. I mean, you know, and um, and I would say to the kids, you know, mommy doesn't know what she's doing, and they'd say, yeah, mom, we know. And I'd, and I'd say, we have plan A, we have plan A, and if that doesn't work, we have plan B. And the little kids would say, come on, plan an A. And we'd have little rooting sessions. And and ha- and I and I hired a cook, and then I hired a housekeeper, and then I hired somebody, uh, a male. And he was a nice guy. He was an older man, and I checked him out thoroughly. And he had a red vest on. He had a suit on, and he had a red vest. And I thought, that's that little panache, you know, and I like that. And he loved my kids and my kids, and so he drove them all to soccer practice and baseball and football and doctor's appointments. And I got to sell real estate and make money. And then we got, um, I homeschooled the kids because Florida's never been known for its schools at all. I won't talk about, I was going to say something horrible about one of our football players, but never mind. your brain three seconds before you engage your mouth. <laughs> okay, then I don't have to make ten step amends to the whole world and for Jameis. Um, so chocolate. Um break um, anyway, so so we're doing pretty good. We're doing the deal pretty good and I'm going to with this love affair with booze. And, and the kids are growing, and of, uh, and then they're growing, and then they're growing, and it comes time for university. And I remember I used to say this mantra: "Haven't you kids ever heard of state schools?" You know, and uh, and all of a sudden I had to make a lot more money in my drinking, and 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 we did we did pretty good. There wasn't a whole lot of anything that I I wasn't able to handle, and. Um, and then, and then the beginning of the end came where I didn't. You know, there's that line in the book where we uh, we find it impossible to control and enjoy our drinking. Well, when I was controlling my drinking, I wasn't enjoying it. When I wasn't enjoying it, I wasn't controlling it. And and you know the big and then the beginning of the end kept. And then I started getting in trouble with the uh, legal authority. I've never had a DUI, never. I've never had a ticket. In 67 years of driving, I've never had a ticket. But I had this temper on me, and, and, this, and the cops telling me what to do. And and I started carrying this gun, a bad deal for an alcoholic. And, and I, Katie told me one time, she said, you know, Patty, you should have been on the Olympic shooting team because you hit everything you ever aimed at, you know. And uh, uh, cops give me some crap, I blow their kneecap off, you know. I don't want to kill them. I just want them to shut up. And and they don't like that. So I started going to jail. And and to make a long story short, I was five times in the penitentiary. And every time I would go in, I would smack one of the female officers, and I'd get 30, 60, 90 days in the hole just in time for my father to get me out of prison. It was like a revolving door. And and the fifth time I went in, uh, my father made it known that he didn't care whether I lived or died. So let me get sober. And uh, it was January 1959. uh, I'll go back to my first meeting. January 1959, I'm in Chicago, and I'm buying rental property. And this is even before I adopted the kids. And I was in the city of Chicago, and this fellow by the name of... uh, John Murphy, he was an old railroad guy that had gone to real estate. And he was showing me property up by the Edgewater Beach Hotel north on Lake Sheridan Drive, there right on the lake. And um, I was there for a whole month and I, I bought some good properties. And he kept saying or hinting at, Patty Ann, you drink a lot. You drink a lot. And finally, when I was just about ready to leave town and go back to Florida, He said, would you mind attending a meeting with me Sunday night at this hotel in downtown? Uh, And he was good looking, and I was a widow. and I thought he wanted to do a little hanky-panky, and I I said, sure. And so, my God, it was Sunday night, March 1959. He takes me to an AMA meeting. Jesus. And I hear I thought I was going to get lucky. And take me to an AMA meeting. AMA meeting. And there were all men there, and they were none of them under 50, and one of them, I think he had been dead three days. They forgot to bury his butt. And one smelled musty, and, you know, and they couldn't rub two nickels together. And they're, they're giving me a first step, and they're trying to convince me that my life is unmanageable. And I'm 23 years old. I'm young, pretty, rich, and intelligent, and these poor bastards couldn't rub two nickels together, and they're trying to convince me my life is unmanageable. And I'm boy, this is a big joke here. And finally, at the end of the meeting, this one obnoxious old SOB pointed his finger at me, and he said, hey, girl, you want what we have? And I thought, hell no. I hope it's not catching. And catching. And, uh, but something happened that night. And something happened for the next 18 years in one month. And Katie asked me, why did you keep going to AA? You never you never had a desire to stop drinking. Why would, did you keep going to AA? Even when you went to the penitentiary, you went to AA. And I said, that was the first time I had been in a room full of men that didn't want anything out of me except my highest good. And that impressed the hell out of me. And it continues to impress the hell out of me. From January 1959 until today, no man has ever betrayed the trusted Alcoholics Anonymous to this female. And I'm tired of men getting a bad rap, because there's just as many snakeheads as there are snakes in Alcoholics Anonymous. So let's face up to that little fact, you know. So don't you women be too easy to point your finger at the guys that are hitting on you. There's just as many females hitting on the guys. Now that we got that out of the way, we can go on. I just love AA people. I love AA, and I love AA people. We are so, we're so funny. We're the funniest people on the face of the earth, you know. I swear to God, there's more politic and going on in AA than there is out with Donald Trump and all those other dudes, you know. I just, and, and positioning. You know, we position, we position ourselves. It's so funny. Now that I'm 39 years sober, I swear to God, the older I get in age and in sobriety, the funnier it gets, you know? And I just sit back, and this is better than a, a soap opera. <laughs> long to watch it sometimes. Okay, we got to get serious. And so I don't even know what time it is. What time is it? Oh, thank God for smartphones. Oh, baby, i got to get sober. And... Uh, so uh, February the 8th rolls around. I've been going to meetings 18 years in one month. Go to a meeting every day, get drunk every night, one day at a time. I know a lot about living one day at a time. And and uh, I'm getting in trouble, and, and I'm smart enough, and smart enough to make trust funds for my children. And even though my life is turning to poo-poo, at least they're going to be taken care of. But they didn't want that. You know what my kids wanted? They wanted their mama. That's all they ever wanted was their mama. And I thought I had to go out and make money so that I could they could have the best of everything. That, that's not what they wanted. They wanted me at all. And I didn't know that until I got sober. See, sometimes I'm so smart and other times I'm just I'm so ignorant. I'm so ignorant of things. And um, so February the 8th rolls around and... And I said that prayer, and I said, Dear God, I said, I don't want to live the way I'm living, and I don't know how to live any other way. And I remember saying, you got to help me! And they found me crawling down the seventh floor corridor of Lakeland, Florida, Lakeland General Hospital, and there was nothing that resembled a woman. I was just bloated with booze and and just, oh, my God, I mean, it was just awful. And this man named Bob Terry thought totally he recognized me because I had attended meetings there many a times, and he propped me up against the wall. I couldn't even stand up. I was just so weak from the alcohol. And he propped me up against the wall, and he said, Patty? And I went like that. And he put his arms around me, and he kissed me, and he said, Welcome back, babe. And and I died. I died. And 33 months later, I come to, and I had open-heart surgery, and I was on kidney dialysis, and I was my—I only had 15 percent of my liver, and I was on insulin because I have alcohol-induced diabetes. But other than that, I'm in good shape.
1: <laughs>
0: and um, and uh, so, and I had just come out of this coma, and in walks this massive, this little. Nazi, and she has the book under her arm like one of these Southern Baptists, you know. And, and she's fierce. She even walks like a Nazi. And she comes in the room and she said, Congratulations, they've assigned me to be your sponsor on your new God. And now, I had three months before had just said to God, you got to help me. But see how we want help? On our own condition. See, we don't want, we don't want that Nazi. We want someone loving and generous and and, and uh, politically correct. Doesn't that make you want to puke that you have to be politically correct? They used to say to me, shut up and get in the car, stupid. And now you say that to a newcomer, they'll report you to New York.
1: Because I get reported a lot.
0: And they, I, call, they, I have a message called General Service Office. And I call up and I say, now what did I do? Did you say this and this? And I said, yeah. And I said, what business is it of yours? What did I say? And they said, none. I said, hang up the phone. No sense at all. Anyway, getting back to my status story. Um, I know. And so... Um, she looked at me, so while she was there that day, she looked at me and she said, Are you an alcoholic? And I said, Yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, Is your life unmanageable, drinking or not drinking? And I thought about it. And I thought my worst times had been when I'd been trying to be sober. That was my worst times. I was okay drinking. It's when I try to be sober. That's when all hell broke loose. And, and I said, Yeah, and I told her why. And she said, congratulations. And then she said, by the way, are you powerless? And I said, yeah, I am powerless. Not only alcohol. I said, I've been, they say I haven't had a drink in three months, and I can't get out of this hospital bed and walk and go make pee-pee. I can't even walk. Three months I haven't had a drink, and I can't walk. And there's nothing wrong with my legs. I think that's pretty powerless. And she said, I agree. Congratulations, we've now done step one. And then she said to me, are you willing to believe? Do you believe or are you even willing to believe there's something bigger than you that can help you? And I didn't even hesitate. I said, yes. And she said, why? And I said, I've been going to AA for 18 years in one month. So they tell me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, and I watch. I don't listen to what comes out of your mouth. I watch the feet of these people. I watch your actions. And I said, the people that are getting their families back and getting their self-respect back and getting their souls back and getting decency and honor back, these are the people that sit around the tables and say, I can stay sober simply because I've come to le- believe in a power greater than myself, that of myself I'm nothing but with this power I can do anything. So based on the fact that they believe, I'm willing to believe. And she just looked at. And she said, congratulations, honey, we've now done step two. And then she came over and grabbed my hands. And and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, this is it. This is the big deal. This is it. And she said, dear God, oh, by the way, Katie cussed a little. Now I'm going to clean up what she said to God, but she cussed. She, and if you co- try to correct her on her language, she was 39 years sober the time she started sponsoring me. And if you try to correct her language, yeah, I wouldn't advise you. She's dead now, but you don't do that. Don't go there. She, she'd tell you in a heartbeat what you could do to yourself and, before you went to where she wanted you to go, what you could do to yourself before you went there. And, uh, and she grabbed my hands and she said, i this miss Katie Martin Haygood every time I do it. Tried to do it my way, I F up. I'm going to do it your way today, God. All turns out better. Amen. And not many people uh, intimidate me. Not many people do. And she intimidated me. And I was scared. You know why I was scared? Because I knew that God had sent this woman into my life to save my life. And I knew that I might not say the right words and that she would walk out the door and leave me. And I was scared. I was really, really scared. And so I'm holding her hands and I know she wants me to say something. And I close my eyes and I say, Dear God, please, please put the right words in my mouth. And I say, Dear God, this is Patty Ann. And I was waiting for God to help me. And finally, in desperation, I said, Ditto! (laughs) And she pulled back, and her eyes got this big. Now, I'm going to cuss. I'm going to say what she actually said. Her eyes got this big, and she said, God, that's the best goddamn third-step prayer I ever heard in my life. And she came and kissed me on the cheek, and she walked out of the room with her book under her arm, and she turned around, and she says, I'll be back tomorrow. We'll get started on your four-step inventory. And, and when she left, the nurse ran in the room and she said, "Are you okay? Your heart monitor is going <laughs> like that." And I said, "I don't know if you understand, but I think God sent that woman in to save my life, and I, I better do what she tells me to do. I have a feeling that this is my last chance." And the nurse says, "Well, okay, but we'll listen tomorrow." And if she, if she, you can say, "Come and get her, and we'll throw her out." And I said, "Okay." And the next day she came and we started on the four-step inventory. And I wrote the four-step. She gave me instructions, but you know we don't have any of you followed instructions on a regular basis out there. I neither do I. And so I wrote out my life story, and it was like one of those Robins novels, you know. It had just enough sex to be titillating, I and mean, just but in the, but I was still a good girl, you know. I and mean, it just everything I came out the heroine. And it was my life story. Survivor. And she read it, and she just tore it up right in front of my face. And she said, Ann, I don't know a damn thing about you after reading this. She said, all you've told me is every filthy, dirty, nasty thing you've ever done. Step 5 doesn't want you to tell. I don't need to hear every filthy, dirty, nasty thing you've ever done. I need to know the exact nature of your wrongs and you need to know the exact nature of your wrongs. So she bought me the 12 and 12 and she made me read chapter 4 about social instincts, security instincts, and sexual instincts. And she said, these are all God-given. They're real good things. And we just, we just screw them all up. And that's where your character defects are in there. I want you to write, why Why do you steal? Why do you lie? Why? did a lot of writing. And I found out that I was one fearful little teeny brat baby girl who had never grown up. I was just as much that little eight-year-old girl then as I was when I was 41 years old, when I was in that hospital with that open heart surgery trying to not drink one day at a time. I was that same little eight-year-old, frightened little girl that didn't know what the hell to do. And I needed somebody to tell me what to do, how to live, and I'll do it. But just tell me what to do. And Katie says, "I'm not about to tell you what to do." And I, got, and I said, "But I'm so scared." And she said to me, "Okay, do you on the roadmap of life, Patty, and do you know where you're at?" I said, "No." And she said, "On the roadmap of life, do you know where you're going?" And I said, "No." And I started getting kind of pissed at her for for making me feel all these things. And I finally I looked at her and I said, "On the damn roadmap of life, I know where I've been, and I never want to go back there again." And my God, she's hallelujah, sweet Jesus! And she kissed me again, and she said, "That's the." beginning the ball, baby girl. We got a chance. And, and if you ask me today, Patty, do you know where you're going? A lot of times I've said the truth. No. I think I'm going in the right direction. And today, here's the deal. If I find out that I made a mistake, I can always turn around and go back the other, or go another whole way. I can admit to you, I, I was wrong. Remember in the old days when we listened to Happy Days and the Fonz, and he could never say, I, I'm sorry, I was wrong, 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 wrong. He could never say wrong. And today, what is it to say, I'm wrong? I was. I, okay, I'm wrong. I better do it different. That's, it's easy in Alcoholics Anonymous today. I, at least I'm finding it easier to do. Well, let me tell you one, one little story, and then uh, we'll all get out of here and have a good year and help these fine folks celebrate their, their upcoming 31st one. This, it's going to be getting better and better for y'all. I can just feel it. So I'm sitting there, and I'm getting sober. I'm out of the hospital. She took me home, and people said to her, Katie, you're supposed to carry the mess. not the alcoholic. She said, oh, that's lost. I'll do what I damn well want to do. So she took me home with her. And then I had to get a job, and I was not employable. And so I got a job washing dishes at the Waffle House for about 15 an hour. And she said, I couldn't quit until I was the best dishwasher in all of Lakeland, Florida. And there were three Seminole Indians there that were dishwashers, and those poor buzzards were born to wash dishes. And I, never, I knew I would never be the best dishwasher in all of Lakeland, Florida, but I really tried. And anyway, so... So one day we're sitting in the meeting, and, and now she's sponsoring nine of us. She she had been in Texas, and God said, you have to go to Lakeland, Florida. She didn't even know where Lakeland, Florida was. And she went, and she was there three years. She sponsored nine of us. I'm the oldest in age but the baby in sobriety. My sister Abby is November 14, 1976, and I'm the baby of the nine of us at February the 8th, 1977, and we're all still. Nine women, all still sober because we had the same sponsor who believed in the program of Action Alcoholics Anonymous. The steps, the traditions, and the concepts of service. Katie used to say, if you just take the 12 steps, you're only one-third sober. This is 12 steps, 12 traditions, and 12 concepts of service. you got to, Dr. Bob said it so eloquently, you know, trust God, clean house, give it away. And, and I think most of us are doing that daily today. And it's so good. We feel good inside when we're freely giving back what's been so freely given us. At least I do. You know, I feel clean inside. I feel like a human being, like a real honest-to-God human being. And I'm doing something decent for a change instead of my motives used to not be too good. Because I always wanted to get the money out of your pocket into my pocket. And, and today, I don't think about crap like that. I really don't. So, I'm trying to stay sober, and, and finally, I'm a year, and they give me a big party, and they record my talk, and I, the first time I was allowed to talk was I was a year sober, and and she comes up to me and she kisses me and gives me my medallion, and she says, "I think you ought to go to university and become a CPA." You're crazy. not a state in the union that's going to let me write the exam. And she looked at me like I was stupid, and she said, God will provide. I thought, the bitch is crazy. The you know how we go to different meetings and complain about our sponsor, and we get a consensus about she's really crazy, you know? And I got a consensus, and everybody agreed with me. They said, Patty Ann, why should you go to university for four years and study something you could never be? I said, see, you're, I, I really like this type. She's crazy. <laughs> but you know what? I found myself going to the, the Polk Community College. And I went to, I got that associate's degree, that two-year degree in one year, because I got a big, big high IQ tool. Man, I tested out of almost all that crap, you know. And then I started doing resumes. Oh, that's a joke. Resume was that long. (laughs) And I was sending it out everywhere. And there was a steel mill in Hammond, Indiana, Hammond, Indiana, that wanted to hire a female. And they needed a female that had, you know, that had some minority things, like being an ex-con, like being a recovering alcoholic, (laughs) you know, like being a female. And I had a Spanish-sounding last name, but I wasn't black. That was the only thing. I wasn't black. But they hired me. And those men didn't want a female in that steel mill. And the first day I was there, I had my hard hat on. I have never had Levi's on. In my, I'm a prissy-ass Southern woman. Never had Levi's on in my life in steel-toed uh, boots. And Katie said I had to have my chin up and my tits out. I was a precious child of God. And I'm standing there, and, and this guy named Johnny Harper, who I still sponsor, and this was 1979, he dropped a load of steel. He was a man, five feet away from me. He could have killed me, and I'm standing there with my chin up and my tits out, and yellow urine is running down my Levi's <laughs> because I was peeing my pants. <laughs> anyway, so and they were going to pay me fifteen whole thousand dollars a year that I was only making seven thousand in Florida. They were going to pay me fifteen whole thousand dollars a year and play my last two years at Purdue University. And so I'm I'm working at the mill, I'm doing good. After three years of being at the mill, they take me out of the union and make me a supervisor of number six draw bench. I don't know if there's any steel workers in here, but it's specialized steel and, and it's gotta be the the variances just have to be it has to be to the it just gotta be so accurate. It's gearing, it's specialized kind of gearing. And oh and, and, and hydraulic rods. You've got to just be perfect. And, and and if you wanted to work at my bay, you had to go make a pee-pee and give it to the nurse. And you had to be clean. If you weren't clean, you didn't work at my bay. And I got to choose my uh, uh, craneman, and I picked old Johnny Harker. He didn't think I would pick him, and I picked him. The man who tried to kill me three years before, and and I just love working the mill, I and the guys, they were becoming my family, just like I had an AA family, I had this, this, and I was the only woman out in the mill, and they never acted untoward. they didn't, and, and, and I was making money, and I was, and my kids, I had three kids left at home by then, they were all at university, and those three kids decided to leave a 15-bedroom house with their trust funds and come live in a two-bedroom, one bath house in Hammond, Indiana to be with their mom and go to public school. And it was a crap school they had to go to. And they wanted that bad enough, and they did. So, and, and, and it was about six months before I was to graduate from per, uh, Purdue University, and I thought, I'm still one life of Pearl What is this business God will provide? And one day, my big boss man, Irv Meltner, came down and he said, Patty, and he said, Have you done anything bad? And I said, No. He said, Your parole officer's on the phone up in my office and needs to talk to you right now. And my God, you know what we think alcoholics think? Um, Old warrant. Old warrant. We old warrant? Yeah. And I said, Oh God, they found an old warrant. Oh God. And I'm going up the stairs, and my legs are shaking and quaking. And and, uh, I pick up the phone, and he said, I don't know what you've done, but you've just gotten three governors to sign three pardons, Virginia, Texas, and Florida, where I had done time in prison. Three complete pardons. You don't have that criminal record anymore. And I dropped the phone, and I started screaming, and everybody, the steel mill went crazy. Frank Kyle, the president, came out, and he was saying, oh, God, Patty Ann, we're so excited for you. He said, go home, you're useless to me. And everybody was tooting, all oh, the crane were tooting the horns. And I went home, and I was shaking. I called Katie, and she said, I told you God would provide. <laughs> So I'm sitting there and down in Indianapolis and I got my exam book and I ripped it open and I it's crowded, the room's crowded. I said, Now dear God, I'm forty-six years old. We don't have time to waste. I gotta pass this damn exam. I gotta make money. I gotta get started. And and so I gotta pass this exam on the first sitting. And I didn't know these two kids sitting next to me and they said, Dear God, save for us. <laughs> And I passed on the first setting, but let me tell you, let me tell you one quick story, and then I really will shut up. Yeah, you know, I got five minutes, four minutes. I had been, I had moved in Chicago uh, during this time when I was uh, writing, getting ready to write the exam. I graduated Purdue in nineteen eighty-two, and I was getting ready to. end the steel mill, my whole division shut down. What, just one day, just one day. And and they were so good to all of us. They gave me 6 months' salary and 6 months' medical expenses. And it gave me time to go in and, if I did pass the exam, to do a job as an intern accountant. Because back then you had to graduate high school, college, four years and do one year of interning, or you could do five years at university, and I couldn't afford to do that. So the timing, just God worked it out. So I moved into, and I and the kids they were doing well, and they bought mother as an investment. They bought me a condo at 452 West Oakdale Street, two blocks north of Diversity, so 300 North, 400 West, and and I got a job in a CPA shop within Hunt School, in in Chicago, my life was going good, and I just was waiting to see if I passed the exam. So one Sunday I get on the elevator, and I had my Purdue, boiler maker. Uh, it was the fall of the year sweatshirt and here getting on the elevator was Kellogg Kellogg the best one of the best business schools the other ki- kid was Wharton Jesus. University of Chicago the, the third one University of Illinois the fourth one and here's my little ag school Purdue Engineering Ag School And they said, what's your major? And I said, I'm I'm getting ready to write my CPA exam. And they said to me, isn't that an ag school, an engineering ag school? And I said, yeah. And they didn't invite me to go to breakfast with them. Why would they want a Purdue girl? They were big Wharton and Kellogg people here. So that November, I opened the, the envelope, and it said, you passed the CPA exam passed the state of Indiana said I passed so I bounded on the elevator that Sunday morning and the other four got on and I said I passed I passed I passed and they and I said did you pass no Warden Kellogg did you pass no University of Chicago did you pass no University of Illinois did you pass And I said, and I will shut up, I said, I think you should have gone to an ad school. (laughs) I love you. Thank you.